Amen. Pushing on. Okay, good. Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, we're going to go... Uh, last week I spent time on the whole three verses, but this week we're going to spend our time on a lot more. So we're going to go through Exodus 4 all the way uh, through 5, actually, the end of 4, all the way through 5. Um, last week I attempted to flesh out kind of what it meant for God to say He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And... It was a little bit disturbing, honestly, I think, hopefully it was, I think it should be, uh, something difficult to meditate on and to really chew on of what that means and what God's kind of relationship with the bad stuff and the seemingly evil things that, that occur. And I did want to kind of, I've had a couple questions as a result of that, and I think it's great for people to be thinking about that and be looking at passages and wondering how does God interact with this and yet still remain good and just and all those things. And I think that, um, as I quoted John Frame, we have to be careful allowing our questions to become accusations towards God. We don't want to begin accusing God of being evil or cruel or capricious in some way. Uh, Rather, we have to understand something that with the brokenness and the evil of this world, due to the rebellion of man, that God has nothing else to work with but evil and brokenness. Okay? All of creation, from man to mountains, is broken. And so God, it's God's job, and this is what He does, being a holy and just and righteous and wonderful God, is He uses all of this stuff for His glory and for our good. That's His job. Our job, to distinguish ourselves from the Creator, is to follow God. Period. To obey God. And I think that as we look at Moses, we begin to be maybe reminded that we are to follow God despite what we feel. The Bible doesn't talk too much about feelings, but it does command them often. Despite what we feel, despite what we can analyze about the situation where we're supposed to obey God, despite what we imagine happening or not happening, or despite what we even see happening or not happening, we are called to follow God. But if I'm dishonest, I'll say, oh, that's easy. It's not. It's hard sometimes. Maybe it's a hard a lot of time. And we saw how many excuses Moses used for not following him. And he laid out, I'm too scared. It's too difficult. I'm too broken. And God looks through all of Moses, and He looks through all of ours, I can'ts, and He sees at the core of it the I won't. And that's what He deals with. And by grace, He softens our hearts so that we can begin to follow Him. And we can begin, even in the hard things that He asks us to do, to follow Him and to trust Him. But the funny thing is, and you'll see again with Moses, as you begin to follow Him, as you begin to go on the mission that God has laid out before you in your individual life, starting in your home and out into your community and even in your church, God begins to reveal some things to us, that being all the baggage that we're carrying that our life of sinfulness or sin has kind of attached to us. And most of the time, we don't even know it's there. And so God begins to reveal, like, I don't think you need that bag. You have this attached to you. And He begins to reveal Maybe some of our own brokenness that we didn't really want, like, or want to see. And this is what he does with Moses. It's good and right for Moses to be on God's mission. It's good and right for Moses to be following what God has called him to do. But the fact remains that if we have unconfessed sin, we are not going to be able to fulfill what God has called us to do, even with our best efforts. And so... In the beginning of this passage, you're going to see that God kind of makes this final rightness, if you will, with Moses. Because when a man's conscience is clear before men, and especially clear before God, we can do what he's called us to do. And we have to also remember that as we begin to follow, as we begin to kind of confess this is our brokenness, God has his plan, and it's not always ours. We follow God. He doesn't follow us. 
But sometimes we get that mixed up. And with Moses, again, we're going to see that it's especially hard to follow his plan when, when we do do it God's way, it doesn't work out that well. Things get worse even. They get bad. But typically, I believe that things only feel worse when we assume that God's goal for us is a life of happiness and comfort. That sounds like, oh, that stinks. But I will say this. If you get nothing else of today, I hope you think about this. And that is that we don't follow God with the goal of getting an easy and a happy life. We follow God to get God, to get Him. Which, when we get Him, when we experience His glory, it will make our life joyful, it will make our life satisfied, despite how easy or hard it is. That's the difference. So we're going to read in Exodus about a very honest guy, Moses, that sounds a lot like us. And he points to Christ in what he does, but he fails to live out what Christ does at the same time. So Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, and we're going to hit some freaky passage here, so you should enjoy it. And this is at the point where Moses has been called to return to Egypt. He's agreed, and just about... When he's going to leave, God says, by the way, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to make him suffer. Eventually, I'm going to kill the firstborn. That's what we dealt with yesterday. Sorry, last week. And now he is on his travels. He's starting to journey. And he basically has stopped for the night as we get to verse 24. And it says, at a lodging place on the way, that's the way to Egypt, the Lord, Yahweh, met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Okay, this is one of the freakiest passages in Scripture. Okay? And by freaky, I mean that's just like a generic term for strange, weird, awkward. Noah's knows what the snarf is going on here. So you could read a hundred commentaries, a hundred different opinions from different men, and they will all be different. Okay? This is one of those passages where just you can reference it as Zipporah and the bloody foreskin. That's what it is. And you look at it and you go, how does this ever apply to my life? Okay, what am I learning here? What did you learn in our church today? Well, I learned about support in the bloody foreskin. They're like, what is that? So, this is one of those passages that my friend, who's a pastor, told me that when he was in seminary, they used to throw out Zippor in the bloody foreskin at every opportunity in their theology classes. So anytime a, the professor would be going along and saying something, he'd be like uh, explaining something, he would raise his hand, so... I understand that, but how does this give light or explain Zippor in the bloody foreskin? And they'd be like... What? Because no one knows. No one knows. It's strange. It's weird. Everyone's got their opinion, so I'm going to do my best to give you my opinion of what happens and what it means, because there's disagreements on both of those things. So here's what seemingly happens. Moses is sleeping or sick, one or the other. In some way, he is incapacitated at this place where they have stopped to rest on their journey to Egypt. We know that he is either sleeping or sick because he is not able to do anything And it's strange for us to to read this because God sends his deliverer, says, go to Egypt, answers all excuses, and then five verses later, he's trying to kill him. Like, oh, wait a second. This is kind of weird. This makes God look capricious and evil and cruel and just like unstable, like he's some kind of psychotic divine, okay? And so we have to say, well, something's going on here. 
Moses isn't doing anything. And so Zipporah, as has happened in Exodus before, women come in as the nursemaids did, as Moses' mom did, and mediates the wrath that is going to happen from men or from God. In this case, it's from God. And she grabs a flint stone, which are pretty numerous in the place that they're staying. It's not hard to find. Grabs a flint stone and circumcises her son. Takes the skin from the end of the penis that she's cut off and rubs it on Moses' feet. And says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You're a bridegroom of circumcision to me. It's not like, you're a bridegroom of circumcision to me. Okay, It's like, I just butchered my son's family jewels, and I don't like this, I hate it, and that's it. And you go, okay. And God's wrath is appeased. And you move on. Now he goes to see Aaron. Like, whoa, 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 what happened here? That's what most pastors do. They'll go right through it. I'm like, okay. I told the elders, I'm like, look, maybe we should skip over this. Maybe I should just, like, blog on it, because it's kind of weird. And they're like, no, we're, we're going through it. I'm like, okay, here goes something. So I'm going to do my best to explain it to you, and knowing that you could go read any book and probably find a different answer, but we'll see what's going to happen. The fact remains is, apparently, if we look at the larger picture, there is some unresolved business between God and Moses. Something. Exactly what it is, we'll debate But there is something unresolved that Moses is not going to be able to continue to the point where God is threatening to kill him. Whether he's floating above him, whether he's just making him really sick and he's about to die, I don't know. But it looks like he's about to die, and it's as a result of something Moses did. So instead of, which is our tendency, to start accusing God of being things, we should probably ask what Moses did or didn't do to bring God to the point where he's threatening him. Okay? I think it could be one of two things. One could be something that Moses didn't do. We call those sins of omission, okay, where you fail to do something you were supposed to. In this case, he could have, it seems, failed to circumcise one or both of his children. Genesis 17, if you go back, explains that God made a covenant with Abraham. And the symbol of that covenant, which all covenants have a symbol... I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. Rainbow. Boop. Okay. We have all these symbols of things. Circumcision was the symbol of the covenant, the agreement that God made with Abraham. And he said in Genesis 17, I believe, verse 10, this will be the sign of my promise. You will circumcise everyone. You will circumcise yourself and all your boys and their sons and their sons and their sons. And if they don't circumcise them, they will be cut off. Imagine it being not just cut off from, from you know, being in the family. Cut off from being with God. Cut off from everything. No blessings, no nothing. You are a wicked evil being destroyed, basically. And so, it doesn't seem, from my simple reading, and I'm very simple, that Zipporah is real excited about the circumcision thing. So I was trying to imagine, why is she so ticked? Why is she so upset about this? Well, I don't know how many of you have sons, but I have two sons, and they're both circumcised. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons people get circumcised today, at least reasons that I was told, like, why would you do this? And it was, you know, because of health reasons, because of tradition, all these things. Well, my whole mom's side of the family is Jewish. So you know I'm circumcising all my boys, no matter what, okay? We're chosen people, right? So circumcising my kids, that's beside it. But the process itself, it's kind of freaky, okay? I remember our doctor, when our first son was born, saying, okay, are you going to circumcise your kid? We'd already agreed. We are going to. And she said, okay, would you like to watch? Now, there's many reasons why I would never want to watch that. Okay? It's just, yeah, blades and that is just not a good thing for any reason. And also just to see my son in pain. But I feel like I'm the dad, my first son, my first child. I should probably be there for him, not that he didn't even remember I'm there, or he might look at me and this is happening and like be scarred for life and hate my guts. I don't know. But I, I said, well, doctor, wonderful doctor, I said, what would you like? What makes you most comfortable? She's like, well, I, I'd prefer you not to be there. I don't like the parents to be there because sometimes they freak out, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I want you to have a steady hand. And I want you to do the best work that you can do, so I will stay away, you know. And so I saw, I saw from a distance it happening and screaming, and I'm like, oh, that's just, ah, terrible. 
So I imagine Zipporah maybe had that experience because she wasn't in a hospital with, you know, in another room. It was probably their first son, Gershom, was born. And Moses was like, all right, child Abraham, let's go. And eight days, which is the eighth day you're supposed to, the eighth day, he circumcised his son. This is kind of my guess. Because it doesn't say, so we have to kind of go. And it's a pretty bloody experience. And I'm sure Zipporah's like, what, what, what do you, what, what you do? Whoa, what are you doing? What have you done? You, my son is screaming, that will never happen again, Moses. We will never do this again. If we have more sons, which I'm sure they plan to, we are not going to be circumcising our kids. And Moses listened to his wife. Kind of like Adam did. Now, I'm not saying listening to your wife is a sin. Okay? Sometimes it is the most glorious thing you can do, and if you don't, you are sinful. Okay? But the fact is, at a moment where he should have led, and he should have said, you know what, it's not always about what is making you happy, because what makes you happy is not in line with God. That's the role of a husband. Say, we're supposed to do this. Adam's failed to do that. And so he should have said, don't worry. We're going to circumcise our kids. But it seems like he failed to do that with his second child. And as a result, he was sinning. Now you go, well, why didn't God kill the kid? Because it says not the father's going to be cut off, the person who's not circumcised. Well, that's a good question. One of the reasons is when they put in Moses there, the actual Hebrew says him. So not really sure who God's trying to kill. But if it is Moses, which I'll go with, he is the head of the household and therefore representative of the home and therefore responsible for anything that happens in his home. So I'm going through you, just like when God showed up and said, Adam, where are you? He didn't call out to Eve. Goes to the man. So it could have been a sin that he failed to do something. It could be something he did. We call those sins of commission. He committed something. Well, what did Moses do? He's been out there 40 years shepherding. What could he have done? Well, before he was 40 years shepherding, he was an Egyptian prince. And right before he went into Midian, he killed a guy. Now, he was attempting to deliver Egypt in kind of a misguided way. But he killed a guy. Genesis 9 says, you are not supposed to kill people. Before Ten Commandments even came around. Came around. But even when that comes around, you're not supposed to kill people. And so, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Moses as you see kind of Israel grow and evolve and, and go into kind of what their kingdom becomes when they get into the promised land, they create what are called cities of refuge. Cities of refuge were people who, when they killed somebody, they had a place to flee to if there were some mitigating circumstances. Like if they accidentally killed somebody. Or if they killed somebody in a fight or something like that. So they would flee to these cities where they could be protected from vengeance and until it was solved or forever. And so... It's possible that God has viewed Midian as a city or place of refuge for Moses, but now he has left Midian, and he still has not made right the wrong that he did. Something he has done. Regardless of which way you go, and there are probably other ways, Moses has done or not done something to cause God to threaten him. And so... I think what we learn from it is that before Moses is going to lead on God's mission, he has to make sure he's leading in the first mission that God has given him, which is his home. If you are going to lead anybody, if you are going to say, follow me, if you are going to put yourself in a position of authority, best be sure that your bride, your children, your home, and everything God has given you is being led. Period. Because you will not be able to fulfill God's call the way that you are called to do. That's a fact. You, will, you can be on mission. You can try to do it. But until that sin is confessed, whether it be something you didn't do or something to you, whether you are made right, you will not have success. And so Moses kind of interacts with God and God does a final, let's be done. Let's be clean. And the, this the Throwing the foreskin on his feet, it's just freaky. But at the same time, it does look forward to the blood that we shed, ultimately, of the firstborn son, who is Jesus Christ. It does look forward to the final plague of the firstborn son, where blood is put over the doors to protect them from the angel of death. 
So there's a lot of other symbolism that can be there. I think pretty much he's kicking Moses in the butt to make sure all things are right before he goes forward. He continues. He goes to Aaron. Aaron is like, go out to the mountain. Okay, he goes out to the mountain. Moses meets him there. Brothers, haven't seen each other for 40 years. Hugs, kisses. Tells him, God showed up to me. Showed up in the burning bush. Aaron's like, really? Yes, let me prove it to you. Snake, right? Leprosy. Wow, holy cow, I believe. And Aaron believes what he says. I believe God, God has come to deliver our people. Awesome. Let's go tell. I know, God told me to do that. Let's go tell the elders together. Cool. So they go. And they, exactly as God has told them to do, they go together. They go before the Israelites. God said, in response to one of Moses' excuses, I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. Don't worry, Aaron will talk. Hey, Aaron shows up. Aaron's talking. Aaron talks to the Israelites. God has come. He has seen your affliction. He knows you're in slavery. And he's going to deliver you. We don't believe you. You know, he shows them all the miracles. And they believe. Just as God said they would. And Moses is excited, right? He's tickled pink. I'm doing exactly what God told me to do. And exactly as God said it would lay out, it's happening. God be praised, right? And these people not only believe, they are going flat out worshiping, excited. You've got to know that they're praising Moses, praising Aaron, and ultimately praising God. These are genuinely converted people that believe that God's going to save them. And I think the beauty of this whole picture is that the first thing that God tells them, or I'm sorry, that Moses and Aaron tell them, is that we know you're in affliction. We know you're in slavery. And that's the, they're preaching the gospel. When we talk about, talk, gospel just means the good news, the message, the good news of God. Well, here's the good news. It starts with some reality news, which is you're in slavery. You are affected, afflicted, oppressed. We always leave that part out because it just doesn't sound good. Basically, you're sinning. But God's going to deliver you. God's going to save you. There's no condemnation in Christ. So they preach this good news. They hear it. They believe. They worship. Which is supposed to be the response. Moses excited. So you got Aaron excited. Moses excited. Israel's excited. What's next? Let's go before Pharaoh. Sweet! And they do. Exodus chapter 5. Right? Catch all that? Good. Alright. Chapter 5. Afterward. So this is like right after, right? They just... We're all excited... Supposedly, Aaron and Moses and the elders are supposed to go before Pharaoh. So it could be a lot more than just Moses and Aaron there. But afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, everything's going good. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? That's the name of the Lord, right? Capital L-O-R-D. So he told him the name of God. Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us, no, it's please. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from the work? Get back to your burdens. Because the elders are most likely with him. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. For they are idle. Translated, lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Well, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters in the form of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble. For straw. And the taskmasters are urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. 
And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Now, what we see happening here is God, well, Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, in all their excitement and all their confidence, thus says the Lord. The first time, thus says the Lord, shows up in the Bible. Shows up a bunch when the prophets come around. The prophets are going before kings who basically uh, don't want to hear what they're about to say. And they say, thus say the Lord, he's going to kill you. Okay? So immediately you're beginning to see this is not a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Never think that Moses is the hero of this story. He is not. God is. Moses is a tool. And he's a rusty, broken tool at best. But God uses him. And he goes before and says, thus says the Lord. This is between God and Pharaoh. Or maybe more accurately, God and the gods of Pharaoh. He says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And he says, no. I don't know who this Yahweh is that you're talking about. Now, Egypt's got over 2,000 gods. It's a good chance Pharaoh knows all the names of the gods, knows who he's talking about if he mentioned an Egyptian god. He doesn't. I don't know this Yahweh. It's not that I don't know him, he doesn't exist. It's more of, why do I care about this God? I don't listen to your God. And what you see, maybe for the first time, is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Is the resistance that, that he has against knowing who God is. Because this is, right here, the key of the problem for anybody who is not a believer. Or anyone who doesn't obey. Pharaoh doesn't know God. He knows of him now because he's been told. Just as a lot of people have been told about Jesus. I tell about Jesus every single week. Doesn't mean you're all Christians. I tell a lot of people about Jesus. Doesn't mean they all believe. Because there's a difference between the knowledge of God and knowing God. There's a difference between I know about him, I know the rules of Christianity, I know this, and having a relationship with your Lord. And that's what we're talking about. Pharaoh doesn't have that. And the reason why is because, like all men, until God shows grace, he has a hard heart. So when someone refuses to obey, I just go, okay, well, God will get you someday. I have no, I have no pressure there. Uh, my responsibility is telling the truth. He doesn't know God in that sense. And Moses seems a little bit surprised by what he says. I think maybe his confidence, he's like, okay, I told Aaron. Aaron's like, boo, yeah. He tells the Israelites, they're like, yeah, exciting. Let's go before Pharaoh. Tells Pharaoh, he's like, no. No. I don't know who this guy is. And I'm not listening to you. And the people aren't going anywhere. And so Moses says, please. Um, please, the God of the Hebrews, he did appear to us. And he goes, he actually says exactly what God told him to say the second time. The first time he didn't say it. Say, thus says the Lord. It was almost like, thus says the Lord, let us go. No. Well, please, I mean, the God of Hebrews, he, uh, he, he showed up to us. And if you don't, um, the pestilence is going to come on all of us. Get a little worried. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever talked with someone where you really want to convince them, like, okay, you guys shouldn't be sleeping together, right? They go, yeah, whatever. Like, no, no, you understand. The Bible says, and you go right to God's Word, right? Because that's going to convince them. The Bible says that right there, that you are not supposed to sleep with each other. It's only for married people. In fact, Paul says that, you know, rather than have sexual immorality, get married. Okay? And they go, whatever. I showed you God's Word, though, right? It's supposed to be powerful. And so then you'll add what Moses did at the end, which God never told him to add. Or else. You want to know what's going to happen? If you don't follow God, or else. Now, I've never seen anyone convinced on an or else. Maybe you have. Never worked with me. I've told people since I was in kindergarten they're going to hell. Didn't work. Okay? Doesn't mean it makes any less true. I can still say you're going to hell. That kid punched me. But it's a fact. But is it going to convince them to believe? Maybe. Probably not. God doesn't need our help, necessarily. He asks us to proclaim His Word. The consequences will reveal themselves. God, the or else will come, whether you tell them the or else will come or not. 
But Moses seems like he's getting a little desperate because he did exactly what God told him to do, and it didn't work. It didn't work immediately like it did before. He wants instant results. And so the king, Pharaoh, doesn't listen, which God told him he wouldn't listen. But he didn't tell him the next part. He not only doesn't listen, he makes it worse for the people. And he says, okay, Moses. Now, you've got to understand, Pharaoh, he's a master oppressor. The guy has been oppressing for years. His dad oppressed him, taught him how to, didn't oppress him, taught him how to oppress. He's like a master taskmaster, master slave man. He's a stud at it. So he's very wise and sly. So he says, okay. The only reason they're crying out, first of all, why are you bringing all these people before me? We've got a lot of work to do. Moses, you see how many people out there? Because the policy to enslave and to enact tough burdens was to kill them, not to build Egypt. Although that was a nice ancillary benefit. It was to kill them because there was too many. He's like, look Moses, you know people out there, why have you stopped them from working? You know what, you guys have so much time to think about what you'd rather be doing. Why don't you use some of that time to get to work? You're lazy, so what I'm going to do is make your work harder. And Moses is like, you can imagine him going, no, no, whoa, 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 hey, hold on. You don't listen, that's fine. Pestilence will come with, no, no, no. I'm making it harder. First of all, no more straw. Now, straw, straw grew. They would cut it with a sickle. They would bind it up. They bound it together, and they deliver it to make the bricks, right? No more of that. It says, in order, doesn't even say that you're not going to get, you can go get your own straw. It says, you're going to get stubble to be used for straw. Well, stubble is, after they cut the actual straw, then what's left is the stubble connected to the root, which is a lot harder to get, and there's a lot less of it. And so he says, now you have to go get stubble, pick up little pieces, get the roots out, all those things. By the way, it's going to be a lot harder to do it off-season, but whatever. It's going to be ten times harder. Now you've got to do it all yourself, and so they do. And they start searching and looking for stubble to make their bricks. In addition... Although your work's going to be ten times harder, your quotas are not going to change. And you still have to produce as much brick as you did before when you had to work ten times less. And so what he's doing is, in many ways, making himself out to be the good guy. Why? Oh, you thought it was bad then. Now it's going to be super bad. So much so that they're going to look back and go, oh, I wish we were back in slavery like it was before. I mean, slavery before wasn't. We only got beaten like once a week. Now we're getting beaten all the time. They want, in many ways, Pharaoh is making them have a hopeless situation. Not only that, he's shifting it over to blame it on Moses. And so the Pharaoh makes the situation so hard that it's basically impossible. Basically impossible. And in verse 14, it says this. And the foreman of the people of Israel, now that the foreman would be the actual Israelites over all the slaves. Above them were the taskmasters who were Egyptian. So when it says the former, it's talking about the Israelites. It says the former of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. So they're beating like middle management, right? So they're beating them, saying these guys are not being productive. Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? So they all go before Pharaoh to complain. No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. The reason why we can't make bricks is because you made it twice as harder for us. We're trying to make bricks. Quit beating us! You made the work too hard. And at this point, they made us think it's the taskmasters. Maybe that's why they're going to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh says, oh, this is my idea. He said, you are idle. You are lazy. You are lazy. And that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 18. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They knew they were in trouble. In other words, when they left there, they knew they were screwed. They were going to continue to get beaten. There was no way they were going to meet the quotas. Their people were going to die. 
Not only was hard work, but it was going to kill them. All because Moses said something. And he says, in verse 20, as they're leaving, Moses and Aaron don't really know why they're hanging out, waiting for him to get out, hopefully waiting for good news, but none comes. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord look on you and judge you. So they still believe that God's going to deliver. They've just blamed the two guys who went before Pharaoh. The Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink, like dead fish is the translation, in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so Moses and Aaron are waiting, and they blame Moses and Aaron for screwing it up. If their leaders wouldn't have misrepresented God like they did, if they just had done what God had asked them to do, this wouldn't be happening. I mean, God doesn't allow, when people, when people follow God, they don't allow, He doesn't allow bad things to happen, right? It's a lie. It's a lie. In a matter of days, they go from honoring Moses and Aaron, most likely, worshiping God, to hating them. It's kind of like Jesus in the triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem, and they're like, Woo! You be the king! And waving branches and all excited. Three days later, he's on the cross, dying. And they're saying, Crucify him! Yeah, give us the robber instead. Crucify him. And you can see, same things happen to Moses. And Moses, instead of, which he should have done, instead of saying, No! God told me this was going to happen. His heart's going to be hardened. I know it's difficult, but put faith in God. He's coming around. Trust Him. Trust Him. He listens to the complaint, and he goes, and he complains to God. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, you have not delivered your people at all. Starting to accuse God. Mistake. Moses had done, and this is what the difficult thing is for all of us. Moses had done exactly what God called him to do, and things got worse before they're ever going to get better. And he probably believes, which it sounds like, that he shouldn't have come at all. If he would have just kept his mouth shut, he's probably thinking... These people would not be so oppressed. They'd still be oppressed, but just kind of like semi-oppressed. Translated, catch this. If I would have not listened to God, if I had not done it God's way, things would be better. It doesn't make sense, really, but that's really what he's saying. And I wonder if that's what we say a lot of times. Because I'm doing it God's way, this is why it's messed up. See, the mission of our church is really simple because we're simple and we're just not that smart. So the mission of our church is twofold. One is we believe we are called to proclaim the gospel. We believe we're sent into the world that be everywhere around us, not just here, everywhere around us, wherever we go, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our families, we are sent to proclaim the gospel. The good news of Jesus, and the good news of Jesus starts with, you're afflicted, you're in slavery. And deliverance is coming through Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for you. That's where salvation comes from. It's not, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it's a bunch of crap. The fact is, we believe in the true gospel... But, we also think, I speak for myself, we all think that we're going to say that gospel is going to be like a magic word and then everyone's going to bow down and worship like the Israelites did every time we speak it. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. Let me prove it. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says this. 
verse 14. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always, always leads us in triumphal, triumphal procession. And through us, as we're preaching the gospel, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's like, it's like godly breath, you know, really good fragrance. Not that, but you know what I mean. For we, verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, the gospel is going to stink to some people. A lot of people. In fact, the Bible says it's going to stink to more people than it doesn't. And the only way to avoid being received negatively, to avoid people not liking you, to avoid conflict of maybe saying Jesus' name, claiming is basically not to say anything. And that's the route most of us take. I don't want to offend, I don't want to disrupt, so I'm just going to be silent, like good old Daddy Adam was. And let all things fall apart. But the second part of our mission is pretty simple, but... I think, deep. We're to proclaim the gospel and live like Jesus. Teach people to live like Jesus. See, the Bible says that once we know Jesus, not know of Jesus, once we know Jesus, something happens. Something happens. 1 John 2, you shouldn't read 1 John unless you, like, really want to be convicted. Because 1 John is kind of one of those things like, want to know if you're a Christian? That should be the title of it. Want to know if you're a Christian? Read 1 John, the epistle of 1 not John 1, 1 John. Then you'll find out real quick. Here's what it says. And by this we know, by this we know that we have come to know Him. Okay, how do I know if I believe in Jesus? By this we know if we truly know Him, if we keep His commandments. How do you interpret that? It's pretty plain. You follow God. goes on. Whoever says, quote, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. So, let me be very, as plain as I can be. If you say you know Jesus, I know Jesus, I'm in relationship with Jesus, Jesus my Lord, and you are living in sin, you are, according to the Bible, a liar. You're a liar. You don't know God. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word when it's going well. Nope, doesn't say that. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him, colon, my English teacher, when you see a colon, this is what it is. So, by this we may be sure that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Okay. How do I know? Do you walk like Jesus? Do we walk like Jesus? Do we follow God as Jesus followed God? And it's only possible if you know Jesus. Because what happens when you become a Christian is that your old self dies. Gone. Dead. As dead as dead can get. And you are raised anew by Jesus coming and living in you and giving you the life that you should have lived. And Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live. Translated, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in us. So it's possible to follow God in this way. It's possible to follow God when the you-know-what hits the fan. It is possible if you know Jesus. It is impossible if you don't. But we have to know something about the way Jesus walked. Jesus' life was perfect. In other words, he lived perfectly sinless, perfectly following God, perfectly loving God all the time, and his life ended with betrayal, abandonment, poverty, suffering, and death. You become a Christian, you have a life of joy. Not if you're going to have a life like Jesus. Not if you're going to have a life like Jesus. And I'm not saying, oh, life's going to be terrible. But I will say this, like Moses, God sent Jesus to a people who were going to turn on him like that. Like Moses, God sent Jesus to a world that did not worship him, 
Like Jesus, God sent Moses with signs and wonders and all kinds of wonderful things to proclaim who God was. And like Jesus, when he followed God, things went wrong by our estimation, by the world's measurement. But unlike Moses, he didn't complain, he didn't make excuses. He refused to turn away from what he knew was right because of what he saw happening in the horizontal realm. And you go, why? How was he able to do that? Hebrews 12 says this, 12.2, that he did it for joy. Specifically, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy? Well, he tells us in John 17, right before he dies, he prays, Lord, give me the glory of you. Let me bask in your glory again. Let me be in your presence. It wasn't, oh, life's going to be so much better. It was, I will be with God. So we don't follow God If you are a Christian, if you are a believer walking as Jesus walks, we do not follow God to get a comfortable, happy, and easy life. We follow God to get God. And that makes our life joyful and satisfying in a mysterious, miraculous, wonderful way, whether life actually is, in reality, easy or hard. We follow God to get God. We don't be good husbands so our wives are happy. Or not be bad husbands so our wives are happy. We be husbands, godly husbands, and godly wives, and godly moms, and godly dads, because we get God. We bask in God's glory because of that. And when things get worse, like it did with Moses, I understand it's hard. It is hard, it is hard, it's hard to follow that. And what we do is we we buy into Satan's lie, who in the very beginning said, doing it God's way is not most satisfying. If you do it my way, what he said, God's lying. He's holding out. Eat it, man. Don't worry about it. He knows what's actually going to happen. And it's the exact lie we follow now. We go, doing it God's way is not going to work. We're being held out on. There's something better. There's not. There's not. There's nothing better than God. And sin is never satisfied. Ever. And I'll end with this verse because it reminds me of Paul. Well, it's written by Paul. But Paul's life was a life that he followed God to the end. To being beheaded. He followed God. And in the midst of that, bad things happened. But he focused focused on the glory of God that he would one day experience face to face but even experienced in the moment and he says this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 he says but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us we are afflicted oppressed, hurt, broken ouch but not crushed We are perplexed. I don't get it, God. I don't understand what's happening. Why do you feel like you hate me? But not driven to despair. We are persecuted, hated by everybody, even our family members, but not forsaken by God. We are struck down, beat down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus may also, also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And skip to verse 16. And it says, so we do not lose heart. Even in the midst of things going wrong. I'm following you, God. I'm obeying God. I'm doing right. Things are not going the way. We don't lose heart. We never lose heart doing right. Though our outer nature is wasted away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us 
for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are seen. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. We don't follow God to get a heap happy and easy life now. We follow God to get God, which brings joy and satisfaction to everything. And I can convince you, show you verses, whatever. Ultimately, it's going to take God convincing you of that. And I pray that He does. And every Sunday, we celebrate the fact that the power to do that rests with God. The power to experience that joy rests with God. The power to follow Him in the midst of what is chaos and what feels like oppression rests in God. We can't fix anything. But we lift up the bread and dip it in the cup and declare that Jesus can. And that don't tell me it's not possible. With Jesus living in us, it is possible. And that's what we declare by taking communion every Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we magnify who you are, Lord, and we humbly minimize who we are before you. We recognize, Lord, that the only reason we could come into your holy presence is because of the blood of Jesus. Father, we know what you have called us to do. We know how you have commanded us to obey and how to live. And I confess, God, it's hard. It's hard because in this broken world, not everything happens for good, Lord. Increase our faith to be able to follow you despite that. To know that we follow you to be with you. To know you. And that your glory, your majesty, and your beauty bring satisfaction to everything. That, Father, you are most glorified by us when we are most satisfied in you. Jesus be praised. Amen.